from historian Greg Grandin. By the 1820s, a kind of madness had overcome young America. Everything seemed to be coming apart, writes historian Gordon Wood in his book, The Radicalism of the American Revolution, as if all restraints were falling away. Dueling and brawling increased, as did alcoholism and murder. The number of private and public asylums multiplied. The tally of citizens confined to such institutions nearly doubled between 1808 and 1812, though an exact count is hard. Many people suffering from physical diseases like consumption and epilepsy were put in asylums, and others suffering from mental illness were locked up in prisons and poorhouses. The list of causes of mental illness captures the competitive stresses of the era, along with traditional explanations such as intemperance and family inheritance. Doctors now added disappointed in business, loss of property, or disappointment in ambition to account for emotional breakdowns. Mania was by far the leading cause of asylum deaths. A new competitiveness was abroad in the land, writes Gordon Wood, and people seemed to be almost at war with one another. It was a season of inward and outward revolution, when new depths seemed to be broken up in the soul, when new wants were unfolded in the multitudes, and a new undefined good is thirsted for, as the theologian William Ellery Channing described the times. Business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is it's so awesome. Italian, young Italian men everywhere. <laughs> disappointment and ambition is so funny. Like loss of property and like disappointment <laughs> and ambition. <laughs> Welcome back to Mythbusters. I'm Carrie. And I'm Jamie. And we are back for a continuing journey through Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth as it takes us through American history in search of the very mythologies that help bring our current neoliberal hell world into being. Well, this is the Beth Mythbusters episode ever. <laughs> Better well, than one day. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, people won't be able to tell from uh, the podcast, obviously, but you're significantly younger than I. Did you get the <laughs> Mythbusters joke? <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. I, I watched oh. Mythbusters. It was oh, on Discovery okay. Channel, you know. I, yeah, Jamie's I mustache, still legendary. Every once in a while, I'll make a cultural reference or whatever, uh, and you'll ask me what it is, and I die a little inside every time. Yeah, every time, <laughs> and I know, and I'm like, man, I'm just like causing like psychic damage on this yeah. poor man <laughs> by asking these questions. <laughs> no, but Mythbusters is one of the ones I do now, and I remember because they um, they did a CIA op where they proved that the moon landing wasn't fake, and uh, you know Damn. that was obviously a cover up. 
you know they sold out damn <laughs> fucking some real op shit yeah yeah right well, hate to know. see it uh they are hollywood special effects people so the very people who faked the moon landing in the first yeah place. right dun, dun, hmm. dun. interesting how they're the ones to buff the myth of uh <laughs> you know <laughs> the moon landing being real <laughs> Well, what are we going to talk the about real today? The end of the myth. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today, Munya? Yeah, today we're going to talk about a metaphor that was gaining steam, so to speak, in the early 19th century America. The idea that the country needed a safety valve. Yes, as Grandin noted in our intro, it seemed from the perspective of many in the country at the time that America was a country in crisis. Panic over crime, poverty, and even lunacy had gripped the country. In short... America had entered the urban crisis stage of capitalism. The 1820s would bring into being both a penitentiary and the asylum in America. The fires of republicanism, which had burned just right a generation earlier, Grandin writes, flared dangerously during the age of Jackson. America needed a safety valve, something that could release the unsustainable pressure placed on the machinery of democracy. Now that an increasing number of unlettered and unpropertied white men had the vote. It is important to remember that the Constitution had been designed to break democratic passions against the levy of elite institutions. The writers of the Constitution despised the masses. They believed, like the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, would so succinctly put it, that, quote, the people who own the country ought to govern it. Alexander Hamilton summed up the debate, stating, quote, all communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are the rich and the well-born, the other the masses of the people. The people are turbulent and changing, and they seldom judge right. Governor Morris agreed, quote, The time is not distant when this country will abound with mechanics and manufacturers who will receive their bread from their employers. Will such men be the secure and faithful guardians of liberty? The ignorant and dependent can be little trusted with the public interest. Or as Michael Parenti sums up, the purpose of the Constitution was to maintain the spirit, the form of popular government, with only a minimum of the substance. Even a minor extension of democracy, such as the extension of the franchise to unpropertied white men in the 1820s, was bound to have a destabilizing effect on the political system. Add to that. Growing inequality, particularly prevalent in urban areas where the poor crowded into slums, lorded over by unscrupulous landlords, and the growing dissonance created by a nation that toted itself as a free republic, while it also put more and more people into chains, and the furious anger caused by efforts to force people into wage labor, leading to early strikes and riots in many cities. For many elites, it looked as if the kettle was going to blow. Fourth of July orator in 1822 argued to his Connecticut audience that the free press worked as a quote, a safety valve for the vapor of popular ebullition. The press allowed the bad passions of society to find an easy vent by allowing people to complain about bad politicians, thus releasing boiling indignation. The safety valve could also work as a warning. A writer in 1833 encouraged Elise to be mindful of grumblings from the public as its, quote, hissing and its noise 
worked as a safety valve, reminding elites, quote, not to apply too much fuel to the fire. Frederick Douglass wrote about how plantation owners allowing slaves to celebrate between Christmas and New Year's provided a safety valve to carry off explosive elements inseparable from the human mind when reduced to the condition of slavery. Thus, these celebrations, quote, damped down the spirit of insurrection. Slave owners argued that the enslaved women were safety valves, helping to redirect the lust of white men away from white women. When asked if he feared an insurrection amongst his slaves, a Virginia planter responded, God and his providence had opened for them a safety valve in the extreme southern states, which purchased their slaves and worked them to death in seven years. Lo and behold, out of nowhere, Miss Laura come up with the bright idea of giving your ass to the LaQuint Dickey Mining Company. And as a slave of the LaQuint Dickey Mining Company, henceforth till the day you die, all day, every day, you will be swinging a sledgehammer, turning big rocks into little for Northern abolitionists who wanted to end slavery, but whose imagination ended at the idea of a black person living anywhere near them, hmm. Africa became a safety valve. As a Pennsylvania member of the American Colonization Society noted, Africa was the only safety valve to our domestic slave question. Northern abolitionist Eliza Wright pushed back against colonization plans, arguing that shipping free blacks to Africa worked as a safety valve for the slave system itself. By removing such encumbrances as the living example of free black people and allowing the South to create the image of the black beast in the white mind. While arrangements were made to deport thousands of free blacks to Africa, ultimately forming the country of Liberia in the process, it quickly became apparent that colonization as a tool for removing millions of people was not going to be feasible. With this realization, the reasonable centrists began to look west. Grandin gives an account of one of the era's moderate centrists. Timothy Flint, the editor of the Western Monthly Review and a vocal advocate of pushing on to the Pacific, proposed in 1830 the acquisition of Mexican territory, which would serve as the proper escape valve from the danger of too great of an accumulation of blacks in the slave states, thinning the population by diffusing it over great surfaces. Flint was opposed to slavery in the abstract, but he said he could see both sides of the question. The promise of expansion gave men like Flint the liberty of never having to stand firmly on one or the other of those sides. Look, I will always believe in populist mm -hmm. politics. Putting right and left now, post-January 6th, made it just me. I believe I'm politically homeless. Like, mm. I would call myself like a radical centrist. Centrism lives. Gotta love it. Similarly, South Carolina Senator George McDuffie argued that the Mexican territory of Texas could operate as a safety valve to let off the superabundant slave population from among us. An article in an 1845 issue of Young America argued that emancipation was inevitable and that freed slaves would quickly fill the nation's jails, penitentiaries, and poorhouses. So the author suggests, quote, the United States possess an ample domain on west side of the Mississippi, in a climate suited to the Negro uh, constitution and habits, which is unoccupied. Let Congress lay out a state here for the Negroes, giving every family a freehold of 40 acres forever with one year's provisions and implements of husbandry tools, etc., to make a beginning for themselves. For free whites living in the North, 
the West became a solution to the urban crisis and the growing threat of an increasing number of unpropertied working-class voters. Grandin summarizes the political problem vexing northern elites. How to stop them from coalescing into a faction, a labor party, and casting their ballots for a program trespassing on property rights. The answer, for many, was simple. Have them go west and give them lands. The endless horizon westward provided the ultimate safety valve to the manias being caused by the depravities of American capitalism. The West, as Massachusetts Congressman Caleb Cushing said, was America's asylum. That fucking quote rocks so much. That's amazing. (laughs) That's so fucking... Wow. (laughs) The call to make public lands in the West available for settlement began to come from all sides. Capitalists saw it as a way to ease tensions in the class struggle, and workers saw it as a way to relieve the downward pressure on wages and as a potential escape from the wage labor system itself. As W.B. Du Bois notes, White workers began to see a way out for the worker in America through the free land of the West. Here was a solution such as was impossible in Europe. Plenty of land, rich land, land coming daily nearer its own markets to which the worker could retreat and restore the industrial balance ruined in Europe by the expropriation of the worker from the soil. This thought, curiously enough, instead of increasing the sympathy for the slave, turned it directly into rivalry and enmity. In the South, Western expansion became a safety valve for the anger that poor whites felt for the planter aristocracy. Yeah, many Southern whites lived in a destitution, scandalous for even the time. In his 1856 travel diary for his visit to the South, Frederick Law Olmsted described the white slums of Charleston. Quote, I saw as much close packing, filth, and squalor in certain blocks inhabited by laboring whites in Charleston as I have witnessed in any northern town of its size, and greater evidences of brutality and ruffianly character than I have ever happened to see among equal population of this class before. Du Bois cites observers at the time, marveling at the, quote, wretched log huts, or dens of filth, that the working class whites lived in. One observer writes, quote, most of them are illiterate and more correspondingly ignorant. They have little self-respect and no self-reliance. The J.D. Vances of their time. Yeah, right. (laughs) Just go to Yale Law, all right? Yep. Yet despite these conditions, Southern planters were able to transfer the class anger that Southern whites felt to the enslaved black who was portrayed as the reason for low wages and the cause of all social problems. Whites further up the economic chain found themselves bound to the planter and against the slave through their employment in police patrols where they, quote, could ride with planters and now and then exercise unlimited force upon recalcitrant or runaway slaves. And as Du Bois notes looming over all of this, there was always a chance that they themselves might also become planters by saving money, by investment, by the power of good luck. And the only heaven that attracted them was the life of this great southern planter. That heaven, they were told, can be found in the West.
so what we see is we have this increasing crisis happening in the original sort of colonies and original states of America, right? And the answer is always never resolution of said crisis. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's always just like ex extend out. And I feel like this is also kind of like um, how, especially in America, had a particular character of capitalism because the internal contradiction of capitalism that really built up in America at that time and its economic system of exploitation was like could be alleviated by the myth of moving west rather than actually directly um, confronting those things right and you know that's really how myths could grow in a certain way because essentially there's an omission that the system does not work and the way to prolong it is to use this safety release valve rather than saying, why is there pressure built up wherever we go in the first place, right? And mm -hmm. so cap capitalism is a system of exploitation and, you know, slavery is as well. Um, those two things are intertwined. And I think one of the things that it shows is that, you know, America was able to prolong and delay certain inevitable crises that were happening on a small scale, which is, I think, really interesting and unique versus Europe, too where there wasn't as much land to just to go forth and capture and settle. Go forth and kill. Yeah, and you heard us say the term urban crisis a lot in this episode, and you'll hear us say it in other episodes. And the urban crisis is this really important thing uh, in the sort of history of capitalism, right? You the the specter of the urban crisis is always looming, always on the verge. In Seattle, uh, they're currently trying to claim we have an urban crisis, right, regarding <laughs> homelessness and crime. But at the time, particularly in the 19th century, when people would refer to the urban crisis, what they meant was, as capitalism continued to proletarianize people in the countryside, essentially forcing them off the land, off the feudal relationship that they had had before right. to the land and to society, it basically was pulling those people into the city, right? And they were coming to the city with nothing but their labor to sell, right? Meaning that they were coming in poor, they were coming in, you know, not understanding the wage labor system and not liking it once it was explained <laughs> to them. <laughs> And, yeah, shocker. Yeah. And that led to a real crisis, right? A crisis in the massive explosion of slums in every city in uh, Europe and in the United States, but also a crisis in you know, discontent and a crisis in, uh, you know, sort of violence in some of the cities themselves. There were riots and things like that were fairly common. It's a crisis that you can actually look at in the literature of the time itself. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, there's a very good book called Monsters of the Market written by a Canadian uh, Marxist where he goes through and talks about uh, Frankenstein and other horse, horror literature from the 19th century. And he talks about how for all the discussion of science and Frankenstein, stuff like that, people forget that Mary Shelley lived in London right next to a city block where uh, the dead you know, poor working class people who had died before the night before, you know, in poverty in the streets or dead prison inmates would be auctioned off to, you know, burgeoning scientists, right, for dissection. And at these auctions where they're selling corpses, the working class would occasionally show up and riot to steal the corpses back to bury them and things like that against the sort of, you know, uh, 
what they saw as the mutilation of their working class brothers and sisters by the scientific community, right? You know, similarly in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, you know, H.G. Wells grew up in London and is writing the story of, you know, his time traveler who finds the Eloy and the Morlocks in the future, the Eloy who live a pastoral life on the lands and have <laughs> white skin and faint features and are gentle natured, and the Morlocks, the ghoulish gray creatures who live under the earth with their machinery and their factories and whatnot. And essentially basically saying like this, is I, his point in that book was something that people would actually discuss at the turn of the century of like, are we evolving two separate species here? We look at the <laughs> urban crisis and we see this industrial working class who's in the factory 16 hours a day who look disgusting, all this kind of <laughs> shit, right? Act <laughs> disgusting. Yeah, you know, right. Is this another you know, creature, you know, the, the piece of humanity, right? Um, but yeah, you could see it in the literature at the time. Uh, there's this idea that the city is both required for capitalism and it has this contradictory nature of bringing in this what you know the middle class and the wealthy would refer to as a foreign element, a foreign poisonous element, right? And what to right. do about that? And the U.S. had this excellent answer, which is push them west. Right? Yeah. Every time the cities get too full, empty the cities, push them west. Uh, and it's interesting in Marx's Capital, Volume One. In the very last chapter, he takes on this this actual sort of thesis here, uh, talking about this guy named Wakefield's theory of colonization. And he says, you know, the European imperialists are partially able to overcome their own urban crisis by sending people to the New World, right? And he's talking primarily about Australia at the time, but also referencing early America. And he's like, they would just ship the people off to the new world, right? And that was how they could relieve pressure in the cities themselves, right? It was their safety valve. Once in the new world, capital could then place a sort of fictitious value on the land that forces workers to work in the factories in the new world. You know, that solves the labor shortage problem in the new world. But then once those workers get too rambunctious, well, hopefully they've saved up enough money they can buy that land in the West. You get rid of them. Through that land purchase, you then import more people from the old world, right? And right. so you have this, this chain of pressure release all the way through the colonial system, right? Now... Marx is going to argue that after the Civil War in the United States that he's starting to see that, well, maybe there's some problems with that in America. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that frontier is closing a bit. And he even kind of, you know, throws up the question, what happens when that closes, right? And he just kind of leaves that question in the air. Yeah. But it's this process that's happening all the time. And particularly when we talk about uh, the politics of cities in America, this concept of urban crisis is always at the core because capitalism always, it never is happy with stasis, always wants to remake the city, rebuild the city. And right. the urban crisis is always the reason why it has to be done, whether it's inner city youth crime or uh, homelessness or whatever. It's always in a, a form of crisis, which basically just means if you're poor, pack your shit. You're about to get shoved out. <laughs> Yeah, surely there's no modern examples of that at all. And for our listeners who might live in urban cities in the U.S. As we begin today's show, we'll just steal from Channel 4's headline because it's true. Seattle is dying. Seattle has a reputation 
and I believe that Seattle is in the middle of a serious decay right now. Seattle, Washington is one of the prettiest cities in the world. Who wouldn't want to live there? That was the state of Seattle just a couple of years ago. Now the city is on the verge of collapse. None of this probably rings any bell. Sounds totally foreign. Don't think mm -hmm. about it too much. Don't <laughs> turn on the news. <laughs> exactly. So uh, speaking of the safety valve, Grandin finally concludes. Theoristicians of social steam deployed their metaphor in wildly differing ways with opposing hoped for effects. Yet when it comes to understanding the metaphor's power, these differences matter little. What matters is that invocation of a, quote, safety valve allowed individuals to simultaneously answer and evade a question. Inherent in the metaphor is the recognition of the profundity of the problem that Jacksonian democracy represented and resignation that the problem wouldn't be solved within the existing terms of social relations and political power. The point of the image was to take social conflicts that seemed irresolvable in the here and now and imagine their resolution in the there and then. There, beyond the line of settlement. And then, when the federal government annexes Texas, or takes California from Mexico, or distributes public land, or opens the China market. So join us next time as we take a trip to America's true asylum, the state of Texas. We're going to have a very special guest joining us to talk about how Texas became a country only to become a state again. We'll see you next time. The money's not to be on the cow's not to be on his freedom and liberty and access to a land to get rid of this abusive uh, government. It's free real estate. dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos junto a activistas aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de
Space. 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 Space.